Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. And it's Casemiro! A thumping finish! With his Rashford! Absolutely magnificent. What a strike from Marcus Rashford. Rashford. Absolutely brilliant. A rejuvenated Marcus Rashford is running riot for England. Ah, the World Cup. A very warm welcome to the Manchester United Weekly Podcast as we reflect on the majority of the group stages of the 2022 World Cup. Some impressive performances from Manchester United players and potential Manchester United targets. So there's some enjoyed casual conversations we had between me, Harry Robinson, and my co-host Jack Tate, as always. But there's also some United chat to be had. And Jack, we'll start with England, I think, and with Marcus Rashford. Happy or proud? What was the main feeling watching his start to, to this World Cup? I think it it went from sort of pr- proud to happy and then back to proud again. It was definitely proud yeah. in, the Iran, in, in the Iran game when the result wasn't in question. And then his first goal against Wales, it was obviously happy that, you know, we got the breakthrough and then it became pride again when the result wasn't in question and he scored the third goal. Yeah. It's just, it's just fun to watch Rashford playing good football, very clearly really high on confidence and just being the player that we've we've sort of known was in there and, and wanted to be shown more consistently and on sort of the biggest stages for a, a number of years now. It feels like everything is kind of coming together. It was particularly happy for me to see that his two goals, one of them, albeit from a set piece, but the other one came from playing on the right, which didn't seem to hamper him too yeah. much against Wales. Scored with his left foot. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. It's, and his general play has, I think, been generally very good as well in games against teams that are generally sitting back against England as well, which also isn't a situation where Rashford often excels. So it's just it's just great to see Rashford. He's always been a fan favourite of everyone because obviously he came to the academy and he had this great story coming on, bursting onto the scene, but he's only endeared himself more to the fans. And he more than anyone, I think, is someone that we, we love to see doing well. Yeah, I can't think of any of the United player that I have that feeling towards because of the way that he came through, of the struggles he's had to deal with, with being in and out of the team, sometimes under different managers, of bad form, of injuries, and all the off the pitch stuff, for which I don't think we can be any more proud than we are of him. And just to see him like, it's just just to see him happy and smiling is is such a nice feeling. The scoring is, is one thing, but just to see like, I saw a, a, a little clip on England social media where I don't know who was, whoever was behind the camera said, Rashi, two goals, you know, and he just broke out into like this like uh, uncontrollable big grin. And I just love seeing, seeing that kind of happiness and pride come through in a footballer who, who we, who we love like that. And yeah, it's been, it's been lovely, but I agree with you. It's not just the fact he scored, it, it, it's his all round play. Yeah, he's been a, a massive bright spot. And I think he's hoping both from a, a selfish point of view, because I obviously like Rashford a lot, but also from an England point of view, with the form that he's in, hope that he's given the start against Senegal on Sunday as well, because I think he's earned it. Yeah, 
Yeah. One of our patrons asks a, a, a pertinent question. Havard says, isn't it wonderful to see Rashford in such good form and spirit? Do we really have to get a rescue striker in the January window if he continues like this? Maybe we're good with him and Martial rotating up top and Alangro Ganacho as options. Now, I get the point. Rashford's playing well, but he's still playing well on the wing. And not only that, even if he was playing well up front, you only have to look at the injury records, especially of Martial, but also a bit of Rashford. And the fact that Rashford's form isn't, he's doing really well this season, it's great, but it's not its not always been consistent to show how, how thin on the ground, I mean, non-existent we would be if Martial and Rashford weren't available up front. So I think we still need a rescue striker. That being said, you look at United's front line now and... It looks with Bruno in such good. He's playing really well at the World Cup as well, and was playing well before the the Premier League paused. You do look at United's front line, and, and you're excited by it, knowing that we've got Garnacho to come back into the team after a good rest and a chance to improve himself. And Rashford's a big part of that. To the to the actual question, do United need a rescue striker? I still I still think we do. Well, for a couple of reasons. Firstly, obviously Martial, who is a big part of this equation, is notoriously injury prone. Yeah. Second. In all of those players, a lot of them are you're sort of counting them in as depth for multiple positions, which I think can make you feel slightly more confident in the depth that you've got. But actually, like that yeah. player could only fill one of them at a time, you know. So you could, in some ways, you could say Rashford could cover any of the three front positions, which then makes you think, oh, great, that's an extra option in left at left wing striker and right wing. But obviously, Rashford can only play one of those positions at any time, so really it can sort of lull you into a full sense of feeling like our depth is really good, but it's actually not. Um, I, I think the other thing is you just don't, you kind of mentioned it. You, I, I also don't really want Rashford to be taken out of the position where he's playing so well. And so even if Martial did get injured, I think I would rather have a, a striker that is capable of playing up front and leave Rashford on the left than having to have him play up front where maybe you can play at sort of 70% of his top level and have someone like Sancho come in on, on the left wing. It is going to be interesting to see how United deal with the transfer window because it is famously really difficult to, to find any sort of good deals in January. There have been a few rumours floating about recently of United looking at strikers in the transfer window and this obviously is a very unique situation that United find themselves in. But it is going to be difficult to find any sort of great deal and so then you're kind of looking at is there an Igalo or Cavani type player that United could maybe bring in on a on a short-term loan. Yeah, well, we'll get on to Cody Gappo in a bit, but just to wrap up on Rashford, I think the, the other really interesting thing that he he keeps pointing out, and he did a press conference before the, I think it was before the Wales game, could have been before the United States Yeah, it was game. after, the, before the Wales game. Okay, uh, in, in which he was again asked, like, what's the, why, why, why are you now playing better again? And he basically just, again, said, I'm injury-free. And it's amazing to think that how how much of a difference that makes. And I, I think it's partly also a better team at United now, but we also didn't see this kind of form for England uh, a year or two ago. And it's it, because we know that footballers are normally playing with injuries and then you see what can happen when they're playing completely injury-free. And he's now been completely injury-free for about a month or two. And it's, uh, it's just, it's, it's, it's crazy. The confidence and the directness and scoring a set piece as well, which he hasn't done a free kick, which he hasn't done for a while. Although the keeper probably, probably could have done better, but yeah. Maguire and Shaw, Maguire's doing well, isn't he? Yeah, he's been brilliant. He's been very good. I think United all round have had a, 
United players have had it's a been very a great good group Cup. stage yeah, for us. Yeah, yeah. So many players performing really well, and yeah, Maguire. I mean, Shaw's been good as well, but I, you know, it's I guess been a little bit more expected. Maguire was the one where there's a few more question marks about what his performance level could be in this World Cup, and he, he's been excellent. I mean, deservedly man of the match against. The USA he was good when needed against Iran. And I think in, in both the Iran and, and Wales games, you've seen some of his ability passing forward as well. A couple of comical sort of marauding runs forward, which I enjoyed a lot. And, you yeah, know... It, one, it, it, one beautiful, beautiful spin and, and yeah, run in the yeah. box as well. And the, I mean, and then the, the throw-in, the, the shot that goes out from a throw-in to finish off one of those runs just kind of topped it off perfectly. <laughs> I mean, I, I've got to say, I am, I'm really happy for, for Maguire. I've, you know, we've obviously criticised his performances, which I, I think everyone has, and rightly so for United, but I have always felt that he is slightly unfairly criticised and his, a lot of the sort of criticism and dislike of Maguire is a lot more about, about his style than actually the substance of his play. And so I'm glad that he's kind of getting the headlines again. He's always played well for England. Yeah. It is a it's a team and a system that that suits him well, and you know I I'm not that surprised that he's gonna that he was he's playing well in this World Cup because he he's maybe had a couple of bad games for England. There was one where he obviously got sent off at the start of what was it 2021, 2020 season. I can't remember in, which one. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was just after he'd he'd come back from the Greece controversy, then played. Yeah, I think then played in the six one, lost to Spurs, and then went and got sent off for England. And gave it was it was a shocking month for him. And there was one there was one bad game for England. Was it the Hungary game where he was bad earlier this season? Yeah, I think I, so. Or was it Germany? Some something like that. Yeah, but, but in general, he's always done really well for England. And he's doing really well. And I I agree with you. I'm really happy for him as a person and a player. But does it for you? Because it doesn't for me. Does it change anything you think about his United future? And it, it doesn't for me because I'm, no, I'm very no. happy he's doing well. And it will be useful for the second half of the season. Or if he come, if he continues to have a very good World Cup, and suddenly there are some interested clubs, United would be wise to cash in in when he's on good form and in the headlines. Because I don't think what he's doing here, we know we know this is what he's good at, but it's not the centre back that Ten Hag wants long term. But I, I am very happy for him. Yeah, I, I don't think it changes anything really. I think it's just an example that it, it's sort of a, a good. I guess indication that kind of horses horses for courses exists in football, you know, and that whether it's because of confidence or about just the way that England play suiting him more, Maguire is much better at playing in this England team than he is in this United team. And that's okay. And that it, the 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 consequence of that means that you sort of have to treat Maguire's sort of play, I guess, slightly separately for England and for United. And and that's okay. I don't think that changes very much about how United sort of centre-back pecking order is going to shape up after this World Cup. I think he'll still stay sort of borderline third or fourth choice, definitely behind Martinez and Varane, probably behind Lindelof as well. And, and I don't think there's a problem with that. Yeah. Let's rattle through a few other great moments for United players. I'd, I'd actually forgotten this when I was quickly noting them down, but one of them, just Raphael Varane being able to play for France. That's, I'm, I'm very, because when he came off the scene, there were some people saying he was overreacting, but he clearly thought he was going to miss the World Cup at that point. This is potentially his final World Cup. How old is he now? Is he 29 or 30? I can't quite remember, but it, there's a chance given the quality that France have in their national team and in their youth teams, this is probably his final World Cup. And he thought, he clearly thought he was going to miss it when he got injured at Chelsea. For him to start the second game is for him. Very, very pleased for him as well. Yeah, it was great to see him back in the last game for 
for France. Massive player for United. I've, I've got to say, I'm, I'm a little bit scared every time I see him on the, the France team sheet that he's <laughs> going to re-aggravate that injury. But it's been okay so far. He didn't have the best game today yeah. against Tunisia. In fairness, in a very depleted and much changed France backline. But it'll be interesting to see if he starts in the knockout stages because Canate came in and played very well. Yeah. So, But it, it, regardless, from a United point of view, it's really good to see him just back on the pitch, seemingly fit again. Yeah. And look, we're only a couple of, well, some teams three games in, some two in. We're recording this just after the, I, I think I meant to say so at the start, actually, we're recording this just after the Argentina game against Poland and Mexico against Saudi Arabia. Which, I mean, the World Cup just gives you these mad situations where I was sitting there praying for Poland to get two yellow cards so that the <laughs> so that the World Cup group C or whichever group it was, I think it's C, could be decided on a coin toss. That would have just been one of the great World Cup moments. Yeah, I was just uh, I was just rooting for any, the most chaos and con- con- controversy you could possibly yeah. get. That's all I wanted from that. On a real note, I was disappointed Mexico didn't either find the third goal or Argentina didn't score a third goal because Poland have offered nothing in, in these group stages and they've sat back and they sat back at 2-0 down against Argentina and they were basically wasting time. Yeah. And that's just so against, I mean, I'm not going to say, no, I'm not going to say it's against the spirit of the game. I'm not using that cliche, but because <laughs> ultimately the spirit of the game is winning. But, they didn't win. They went through with four points and played poorly in for the vast majority of the group stages, whereas Mexico, A, have a nicer kit and B, <laughs> <laughs> to take things down to the to the most elementary level and scored an amazing free kick and went for it in the most brilliant way against Saudi Arabia. And yeah, I would have liked to see them be rewarded for that. Yeah, I've got to say the, the sort of second tier of European international teams are extremely uninspiring. I, I've often felt this about Switzerland too. Yeah. They seem to pop up in every single tournament, get through to like the last 16 or quarterfinal. Good players as well. It, it's always the same, very sort of, just not not particularly interested, not very memorable, but somewhat effective football. It's, yeah, it's just, and Poland have, have kind of lived up to that this year. I'd much rather have seen someone like Mexico or just in general, any sort of other, other teams from any other continent other than Europe kind of getting through this because A, they're teams that we don't watch quite as often and B, I think they tend to go for it a bit more than some of these sort of second tier UEFA teams. Yeah. Bruno for Portugal, Casemiro for Brazil. Goals, assists, everything we'd want. And all of this is just to say from a United perspective, A, we like seeing our players do well, but also, and yet we're, we're only a few games in and things could turn out very badly for a player or two going into the latter stages. Who knows what's going on, goal, be sent off, whatever. Miss a penalty. But as things stand, all of our players are doing, well, all of them. Ericsson's Denmark haven't had a great time, surprisingly bad. But the majority of them are having a great time and could all come back just buoyed in a great mood in a United dressing room that seems to be picking up in terms of its togetherness and, and happiness, especially with Ronaldo gone now, not causing as many problems. But yeah, Bruno and Casemiro, good starts for them as well. Casemiro, you, you talked about with Rashford sort of the feeling that it, that we get when we watch Rashford and he scores. The feeling that I get when I watch Casemiro is it feels surreal, honestly, that a player that is just quite clearly so good plays for United. Honestly, that, that's how, how I feel. How, how the mighty have fallen, eh? Yeah. It just, in both of Brazil's games so far, he's been just head and shoulders above anyone else on the pitch, really. I think he, he won, definitely won man of the match in the first game. Did he win it in the second game for Brazil too? I can't remember. 
he was he was definitely I in you know in my book anyway one of the best players on on the park and it's it's just he's just a joy to watch Casemiro because he does his job so effectively without sort of trying to do anything that he's not particularly great at and I think he more than anyone it's just someone that I I massively appreciate what he brings to any side that he plays in and then you know Bruno has been doing Bruno things to be honest it's kind of what you ex- come to expect yeah. at this point it was hilarious seeing all the the furore around whether Ronaldo sure. got a touch on his cross or not it's just so funny yeah quite thankful that that isn't part of the United experience anymore but I'm glad for Bruno that he's he's playing well and seems to have he hasn't always sort of found he hasn't always found sort of the right fit in that Portugal team and yeah. he seems to have done so now which is really good to see yeah and I think that's part of it I, I wasn't expecting a huge amount from Portugal going into the tournament because of the fact they've often failed to find that fluency between what is undoubtedly a set of really really talented players but just the fact that Bruno seems to be fitting in better suddenly makes me think because they're going to be on England's side of the draw pretty yeah. s- sure you suddenly think, oh, oh, wow, <laughs> they would be a, they'd be a real test if England are going to beat Senegal, which I think will be will be really difficult. There's been some great moments at, at the World Cup so far, hasn't it? Uh, the Saudi game against Argentina was amazing. The Japan defeat of Germany was amazing. The, today, the the Australia celebrations at like three four a.m. Uh, back back home in Australia were that that was great to see. And it feels like there's quite a few of these, and and maybe you'll know more about this given that your US these big moments where uh, what's the I guess the d- developing football nations and I think it's still fair to call Australia and the US developing are having their moments where it, it may be it's erupt yeah it's always a fun a nice part of the World Cup because you do get countries where either they just aren't don't have sort of the biggest pedigree in football both domestically and internationally and also you get countries that where football just isn't the main sport sort of getting its moment in in the spotlight and it's always fun to kind of see that happen and see the reaction to it i mean yeah you're right the the videos that have come that we've been seeing in the last few hours in australia the celebrations there were, were great i mean the some of the the footage that we've seen from like melbourne for example it i mean it looked like a, a champions league game in like turkey or something you yeah. know, honestly, with all the flares going off everyone's three, jumping in the streets three four in the morning i loved it yeah I mean, just to be honest, just the fact that that many people were out there watching yeah. at three in the morning, regardless of the celebration, is impressive yeah. enough. So, yeah, it's been great. I mean, it really has in the US been a big deal that, I mean, the, unfortunately, given how bad the game was, I think that the game on Friday was in the US and England, given it was Black Friday as well, was like the most watched football game in history. Wow. In the US, you know, women's football has always been arguably more popular in the US than the men's football because the US women's team is, has been so good for so long. Um, but I think there's a real... This current US American team is extremely young and I think that has got a lot of people excited about sort of what might be to come. But yeah, it was, I mean, it's just always fun, isn't it? Seeing different sort of football and cultures come together, like seeing the Argentina fans in the stadium yeah, today were absolutely say, yeah. brilliant. Even like the, all the, the Wales the, the, fans, honestly, were, were great yeah. throughout. The Wales travelling support is incredible. But yeah, the Argentina, yeah. they they just made that like a home game. It was amazing. The entire way around the stadium just filled with blue and white and a very occasional River Plate shirt. Um, they're, they're, they travel in the most ridiculous numbers and the noise they create is it's not just such big noise, but I much prefer it. I think English culture and South American culture is much more closely linked than English football culture and 
like German, French, Spanish, Italian, because to me, the European fan culture, not all of it, but a lot of it is about noise. Whereas the Argentinians are basically a louder English. They still have the funny wittings and creating originality, but they just do it on a even more ridiculous scale and more organized. Well, I love it. And I went I was there for a couple of months, a few years ago and I didn't, I never even got to go to Boca Juniors. I went to River Plate, but uh, I went to Argentinos Juniors, Diego Maradona's first club and like quite a small ground. The stadium's named after him. They have the players come out of seen it on Twitter, no doubt the um, inflatable Maradona head where the players walk. Yeah. yeah, That's yeah. The, the, the tunnel at, at Argentinos and that's a small ground, but the, just the noise and I, I, everything about it. it's, it's like it's on the, on the very edge of sensory overload, but in the, in the complete perfect way of like fireworks and drums and these amazing smells and everything. It, it was great. And yeah, you're right. Seeing, and I think actually, I think, um, um we're going to have to mention for a second now we're talking so positively about, about the world cup, but because of its location, this to do with Argentina because they travel anywhere and it's it's not easy for them to get to, although there are, because of the links between Argentina and the Middle East, there are loads of flights over. But seeing the number of uh, fans from African countries, amazing, and from countries vaguely around the Middle East because it's easier to get to, because it's much easier to get visas to, for example, compared to like Russia or compared to 2026 when it's in the US, has been one of the benefits of this. And has been an advert for having a World Cup in that part of the world. I think we've spoken about the, the many caveats before, but and, and I'm going to put them there again. But I do think that's a positive worth pointing out that the, the sheer numbers of uh, Ghana fans and Cameroon fans has been amazing. And, and seeing the videos of them walking through the street, it's just it's just brilliant. This is what we all want to see. Unfortunately, there, there are the many caveats. Well, the, the, the basic idea of having World Cups in... I guess, I, I guess I'm going to call it sort of non-traditional, sort of really powerful football countries. It's, it's a great idea. You saw that with South Africa too in 2010 and you know, going back to Korea and Japan in 2002. But I know in 2010, the, the Vuvuzelas weren't that popular with people watching, but it's an example of how, despite the fact that not everyone in the stadium is from whatever country it's hosting, you do get this huge influx of just new footballing culture, new f- footballing sort of viewing experience that comes to the fore whether it's that country's, whether it's being hosted kind of football culture or whether it's just because you get fans from different countries that normally are able to go to World Cups attending. You know, in the the, the next World Cup in the US, Canada, Mexico, I'm sure it have a big yeah. South American flair to it as well because the, the football culture, you know, just from my experience going to like MLS games, the, the football and culture to the extent that sort of, the, especially the fan culture exists, it is heavily influenced by Central American, South American kind of football culture's big focus on on music and drums. And like you mentioned, it's very similar to what you see in like Argentina, Colombia, Brazil. Yeah. So that will have a lot of that there. When you went to Korea and Japan in 2002, it was again when you a see the, just different experiences. I was just going to say, you see the legacy of the 2002 World Cup with the, for example, the South yeah. Korea against uh, Ghana. The South Korean support in that game, brilliant. There were so many shots of the South Korea end of just like uh, the most brilliant displays of emotion. I, uh, it was so harsh on them in the end. And that was an amazing morning where you had Cameroon three, Serbia three, and then uh, Korea two, Ghana three. That was like one of those dream World Cup mornings. Uh, it would have been too early for you to probably be, watch live 
I'd assume because that for for me in the in the UK that was a 10am game and then a 1pm game uh, but that was like one of those unique this one of those mornings you only get in the World Cup where you're watching football at 10am and then it's just this crazy chaotic game yeah and teams that you would never normally watch yeah yeah. you know if you if you got told that Cameroon against Serbia was like a friendly and an international break you'd never bother sitting down yeah. and watch it you know but in a World Cup it's suddenly like the biggest game that you could ever think yeah. of that being said the caveats. Better articulated people have articulated this better than we will. But as a overall point, and this is a big question and one that academics will ponder for many, many years to come. So I'm not expecting a perfect answer, but do you think so far for Qatar, it's been a, a success or a failure? I mean, I guess it depends by what metric you're kind of measuring it by. Because if you're measuring it by, I guess, sort of Western media coverage, it's probably been a failure. Because if yeah. anything the coverage has got and to be honest I, I have a little bit of a problem with the way the coverage has, has been going but it's it's. I think the hope would have been that, that the sort of controversial side of things would go to the side once the football actually started and if anything the opposite yeah. has happened and it's been played up to an even greater extent than it was before so I, I guess as you measure it by that by that metric it's probably not been a great success but I'm sure financially which is probably an even bigger one, it probably has been a great success because there's still been a lot of visitors to Qatar. I think actually most of the people that have been watched, been attending games in Qatar have had generally a, a quite a good experience there. There have been a few notable incidents, especially around sort of like LGBT supporting, um, like not even protests, just sort of colours that have been brought into stadiums. Yeah, but I think, I think you're right. I think what's more interesting is that this has probably been I don't think there's been any success here for FIFA. I think there's only been failure. Yeah, not at all. So Qatar are kind of on this balance where, yes, they're getting loads of negative coverage in the Western media, but how much does that really affect them? They're yeah. still making deals with the British government, with the American government, with the Argentinian government. Who, what is it, who, who cares? We care, but to them, what does it matter if the Guardian or the Times are saying you, you're doing things wrong? And not only that, but they're paid ambassadors such as John Barnes and many others and David Beckham are winning lots of Western people over to a quite frankly ridiculous argument about respecting their values. So in that sense, maybe maybe it's leaning towards success for them, unfortunately. But I I, I think for FIFA, but sorry, one final point of Qatar, the fact their football team did so badly is is a massive blow for them because they spent a lot yeah, of money. That, yeah. they, they weren't just trying to host the World Cup. They were trying to have a good football team and they failed that in a big, big way. They really, really played poorly. And haven't actually um, had some success in the past couple of years. Like, they won the Asian yeah, Cup yeah. in 2019. They actually had on paper a decent enough team. Yeah, that was probably the biggest sort of that downside they've had so far. On the... Sorry, I have, I have kind of a, a, a slightly long-winded, but hopefully... <laughs> nuanced enough take on sort of all the controversy surrounding Qatar, which is that you're right that in, in the, the people I think that are really losing out from this World Cup is FIFA. And actually, I think that yeah. needs to be made a much bigger deal than it currently is because I agree, yeah. all the focus on sort of Qatar's policies, especially the sort of anti-LGBT, LGBTQ laws, focus on human rights, I completely understand it. But I think it's, it is difficult when that's the only thing that you focus on because that is completely separate to the World Cup itself. And so it opens up this whole, this whole sort of world, I think, where well, what, like, where do we draw the line of which policies are acceptable or unacceptable for a country to have so that we don't bring yeah. it up during a World Cup? You know, 
I'm living in a country now in America where, you know, there's mass shootings every every day. Abortion is illegal in half the states. Is that acceptable for a country in the next World Cup? You know, in the first week of the World Cup, there's multiple mass shootings across the US. Is that just an okay thing? Like people like Gary Lineker and Alex Scott, who have been vocal about their opposition to it being held in Qatar, and then pictures with Putin from 2018, you know, is, so we're just fine with that, but not in Qatar. To me, what the focus should be more on things that the World Cup directly create, created, which to me is A, sort of corruption within FIFA, which is still ongoing. And I think, you know, Gianni Infantino has only made that worse with some of the ridiculous speeches that he's been giving recently. But also the biggest one, I think, is just the treatment of, of workers that were brought in primarily from South Asia. That, yeah. you know, this World Cup has literally been built on the backs of people that were housed in terrible conditions, paid horrible wages and were promised a lot more wages a lot bigger wages than they were actually given. Hundreds of people died in the creation of these stadiums. Like that is something you can say directly because of the World Cup being in Qatar, hundreds of people have died. You know, that is, I think, what the focus should be on. And that ties in a lot more back to FIFA than it does to policies that are outside of the World Cup, which I think is, it's just difficult to know where you draw the line in that case because you could then say, well, yeah, agreed. You know, 90% of every country in the world shouldn't be allowed to host the World Cup. Agree. And FIFA have a responsibility to set out a, a a set of regulations for a World Cup host that weren't adhered to in Qatar, weren't adhered to in Russia, definitely weren't adhered to in Brazil either, where there were deaths in stadium construction. Yeah, the last three World Cups have really having the history of the World Cups really strange because right from its very start, it has been intrinsically linked to politics yeah. and there's no getting away from that. And pretty much every, at least one in every, well, I mean, for every, every World Cup is political, but one in every three or four at the very minimum has been not just like linked a little bit to politics, but fundamentally overtaken completely by something political, whether it's Mussolini in 34, the Hunter in 78 or Putin in, in 2018. And many other ones. Those are probably the three most famous so far until Qatar. But I think the final, there, there had been for quite a while up to Brazil, Russia and Qatar. It, it kind of become, it, I think the World Cup had become more pure and it had become more commercialised, definitely. But I think it had, it had also strangely become a more, more pure place. Unfortunately, the last three have really, have kind of, steadily gone from kind of bad Brazil, very bad Russia to even worse Qatar. We haven't got much longer to talk, but yeah, I think the pressure, I think you, um, right, the pressure should this, absolutely be on FIFA. Have you seen, have you watched uh, by any chance the, the new Netflix documentary about FIFA? No, the one, the one great thing I've read rather than watched about FIFA was a book by, I think by a New York times journalist, Ken, Bettinger, I think, is his name, but I read this about four years ago, so I might have got that wrong. But it was, the book was called Red Card, and it was, I remember reading it. My sister got it for me for my birthday. Amazing book, uh, detailing the entire FIFA case and how, and like the FBI's investigation into it. And I remember finishing it yeah. and sending a message to her saying, That was great. Thank you. Someone needs to turn that into a film. Because <laughs> the story, but also the way it was written, was just brilliant. And so I thought, yeah, I've, I'm not surprised it became a thing. But yeah. I, I'm lots of my mates. It, it's meant to be very good. Isn't yeah, it? it was great, and it. I think to me, it highlighted. Like I, I think the story of FIFA corruption. I think for a lot of people that maybe weren't like completely clued in with FIFA, as most football fans aren't on like a daily basis, the story of corruption in FIFA sort of began and ended with awarding the World Cup to Russia and Qatar. 
Yeah. But actually learning how far back it has gone and the fact that oh, it's, it's the whole entire time. You know? Yeah, exactly. And like even the awarding of the World Cup in yeah. South Africa was riddled with corruption as well. And that just the whole setup of FIFA being this hugely commercial enterprise that rakes in so much money, but at the same time doesn't really have a hard product to say it sells. Everything it sells is is it's a bit wishy-washy and it's very easy, therefore, to create these sort of dodgy deals where you're selling something that's very vague because everything yeah. in FIFA sells is quite vague. And so it, it, it's just fascinating how sort of the whole setup of FIFA, FIFA as an organisation is is very open to be yeah, taken I advantage agree. of. And FIFA is where change really can be made as well because we can all talk about Qatar and Qatar's laws. As you've said, you're on dodgy ground there anyway when it comes to specifically the World Cup, but our governments are still dealing with them and our businesses, like the businesses in the United Kingdom and the United States are still dealing with them. So how much change is that really going to make? But FIFA is where us as football fans can genuinely urge and encourage change. And I'm a bit disappointed so far in the English Football Association, at least, how they've responded to what FIFA have done not just in, in the original awarding of it, but in the denying of them of wearing the rainbow armband, etc. Uh taking love, the word love off of the Denmark shirts is just absolute insanity. And I'm a bit disappointed in ha- yet to see a really strong response from any association actually. But um, I am also aware in saying that because something things could be going on behind the scenes which could suddenly erupt in a month or two and that's going to be very interesting and potentially very exciting to watch. We need to wrap up and we've got another question. Well, it's more of a remark. It's on transfers and on Cody Gakpo who scored three goals in three games from the Netherlands. We're going to go back to on the pitch on the football stuff. He looks good, doesn't he? I'm not 100% convinced yet but he has clearly got something about him. And one of our patrons, Steve K, makes this uh, this remark, which I'm not sure I agree with, but I'll, I'll give it anyway. He says, Louis van Gaal hates United so much, he's sending Gakpo out to score in every game just to push his price up and cost <laughs> us a few more million. That level of bitterness and spite is almost admirable. I don't, I don't think that's happening. And actually, I, I'm loving seeing Louis van Gaal again. I'd love to see him, if England uh, can't, go all the way and we'll see because it's been good but not amazing so far but I would love to see Louis van Gaal regardless of my own like support of England I'd love to see him bow out of football with with an incredible World Cup win with the Netherlands but Gakpo what do you think from from the first three games I mean he looks good you got you got to say that first of all I think my my slight concern before the, this World Cup albeit having watched very little of him was a couple of things. One was just the level of quality and whether that is enough to kind of make him worth as much as United are probably going to have to pay for him. And then B, whether he can play properly up front or if he more plays off the left where we obviously have a lot of options already. And I think he, he's he's starting to address both of those fears through how well he's played at this World Cup so far. Yeah. The only other thing to to mention before we wrap up and we've probably gone on a little bit longer than we anticipated but the officiating and specifically added time which I have really enjoyed I think we've I don't think we've I think we were trying to be a bit careful about not using it as an excuse too much last season or this season but so many times I spoke about it I can't remember which game maybe Aston Villa possibly uh, where 
I've been at Old Trafford and genuinely just been driven to to boredom by how bad the time wasting has been by an opposition side there. And the worst I think I can remember is Aston Villa last season at Old Trafford. Uh, Emmy Martinez, a particular uh, foul, a sinner in that regard. Everton also did it terribly. West Ham have also done it terribly. And it, I just think it, it ruins football as a spectacle. And I think the steps we've criticised FIFA a lot, the steps FIFA have taken here, uh, Pierluigi Colina, as the head of referees, recommending them to properly add time on for any time the ball is out of play is brilliant and has made for much more entertaining games and in the end has actually made for some incredible periods of added time as well. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Yeah, it's been, it's been a shock. Definitely. The first couple of games in particular, like you often kind of hear these like refereeing directives and then you're still kind of stunned by them when they happen. So seeing like the first, or the first England game was especially an aberration because there was actually in both halves some genuine reasons why that much added time would be needed. So I think, I think England's first game went on for something like 115, 120 minutes in total, uh, which was which was just an interesting watch. I, I am I'm I'm sort of fully on board with the idea of actually making added time take into account all of the stoppages that have happened because, as you were just mentioning, it definitely doesn't uh, currently. My only my only slight concern is one, well, a couple of things. One is that. I feel like there are probably better solutions than just adding on 10, 15 minutes and at a time occasionally. I just somehow the optics of a 90 minute game actually going on for like 105, 110 minutes doesn't sit right with me. Um, even though it is, I think, a, an improvement on the ball only being in play for like 20 minutes of a half and then adding on three minutes at the end and calling it a day. The other thing that I think is just slightly weird, is, and I think this is something players will get better at dealing with if this is something that happens in sort of domestic leagues as well, is that teams are still kind of approaching the end of the game the same. So like, you know, a team, if you're protecting a one goal lead, you, you play differently in the 75th minute than you do in the 85th minute, let's say, yeah. right? Because you obviously, you get more defensive generally, you're more willing to just kind of park the bus and hang on. But now at 85 minutes, rather than there being five minutes and then maybe three or four minutes of added time, you might have like 15 minutes of the game left because you've yeah. got five minutes and then maybe 10 minutes of added time. So players, I think, just need to understand that 85 minutes doesn't necessarily mean what 85 minutes used to but that, mean. Is that is that not better? No, I, it think, is, that's, that, I think that's a good thing. It's, it's just it's more it's strange at the moment 
for like in the like in the um, the South Korea Ghana game, for example, like at the end of that game, yeah. it was literally like twenty minutes straight of South Korea just like barrage against <laughs> at Ghana's defense. So it's, yeah. it's just on the players to learn and deal with it because it's still sort of solving the problem of a team being able to time waste so much and and get away with basically the ball only being in play for like fifteen or twenty minutes. Of the yeah, half. I think it's interesting to say that because I thought about the first half that it's made teams less likely to just let the first half fizzle out yeah. at 40 minutes. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and even going on into added time. I just, I haven't noticed the same kind of level of, oh, it's almost half time. Let's just sack it off. And I've enjoyed that. I just think, I, I think it's brilliant. And I think you're already seeing that the it's going from 14 minutes added on to six for most games yeah. because players aren't time wasting. It's very simple you punish people for doing something wrong in football. They learn within a week or two. It's not difficult. And I've consistently said this about time wasting in the Premier League. It would be fixed within two weeks, three or four match days. And I think the same applies to, for example, and, and this is something FIFA have tried to do at, at World Cups, pulling at corners yeah. for professional, what we call professional fouls when people just take someone out on the counter-attack. Start giving red cards for them. They'll be gone in two weeks. It, it, it's so easy, but this is the first time I've seen it really done really well. And I'm, I'm, I wish it would come into the Premier League, but I'm convinced they won't do it. And I, I don't know why. They've, they never seem interested in stopping time wasting in the Premier League. Yeah, it, it is an interesting one because you, like, you'd think that the, the product, like what, what incentivizes people like the Premier League is, is money ultimately. And you'd think that there is more yeah. money to be earned by the games being on for longer and you improve that product and keep people more engaged. But I mean, may, maybe it doesn't, maybe the, the difference between the game, the ball being in play for, you know, 25 minutes versus 30 minutes of a half doesn't make that much difference for sort of viewer, viewer engagement. Maybe they make money off adverts more than they do off the game. I, I don't know, but it does feel like something that would, like you said, it's, it's very easy to fix football players more so than the most respond very clearly to the incentives that are put in front of them. And so if you make something punished by a much, to a much higher degree, they will change their behaviour on it very quickly. Yeah. Yeah. We should wrap up. Anything else? I've just quickly thoughts on, uh, it didn't end up happening, but thoughts on Poland and Mexico's tiebreaker potentially being decided on fair play. Uh, what, do I think that should be something else? I, I, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. It just feels, it feels strange that so where the stakes are so high, it could end up being decided by that. But I don't, I like, I don't really know what else it could yeah. be. Especially in, I think that makes a lot more sense, like in a league where there's been 32 yeah. games or something. So it's kind of a fair, that is maybe a fair way. It, once it's, because in a league, if there's been 32 games and you can't be separated by goals scored, goals against, etc., that, that you you have to find somewhere. But when it's only been three games, you think, is that is that enough time for things to balance yeah. out where one team might have just been in kind of a really aggressive, intense game? And another one might not have been. I, I, also, so, I sort of wonder I, if I, I there isn't it. a way that you could do it that like somehow controls better for like referee temperament as well. Like there are certain referees that are yeah. just famous for giving Big out more cards. More, yeah. yeah. And obviously at a World Cup, yeah. like you said, when you're only playing three games, you get one game where refs giving out 10 cards to each team. That, that's going to effectively, it's not going to send you out because obviously a lot, you have to have be equal on a lot of other things first, but could end up, you know, having a big, big deal breaker. I wonder if you could say 
like the same two referees referee every game in a group and each team is refereed by each one once or Mate, I saw someone I, suggest, I, think, I think you're better off just changing the rule yeah I, I did see I don't I, I'm sure cool this won't actually happen but I did see an, an article saying that for the next World Cup where there's, where there's only going to be two group games it's going to be 48 yeah. teams but groups of three that they could bring in penalty shootouts I think that will happen just to, to to decide to get like an extra bonus point if a game is drawn. I, I, I think that's a serious suggestion and probably will happen. I think it's silly, but I think it will happen. I mean, that is literally a pre-season tournament. Well, it happens in the Papa John's Trophy and in the in one of the US women's yeah. soccer competitions. I can't remember which. And in the Continental Cup in in uh, women's football in the, in the UK as well. Me, me and my mates were coming up with a variety of suggestions uh, instead of the fair, if the fair play was going to be drawn. So if Poland got their two extra cards we were deciding, I suggested a five, just a five-side tournament on the beach the next morning <laughs> between Poland that just get all the players involved. They can choose their five-side, one or two subs allowed and like first to first to 10 or something or get the managers to do like a mastermind style quiz. I was going to say, I like the on, idea of a little pub quiz or something. Yeah, just between the managers as well. And they each get to choose, the, maybe there's one general knowledge round one World Cup round and then they each get so the general knowledge can be World Cup and then they each get to choose a round on their speciality but the other one gets to play it as well just in case they're good at it and see what happens and I'd like it to be in like a dark room each manager has like a, a glass of whiskey and a cigar <laughs> and then it's broadcast live in a stadium with 40,000 Mexico fans in one end 40,000 Poland fans in the other and just carnage ensues <laughs> I'd, so they, they were some of my ideas. I had quite a few more, but I won't go through them all. I like the. I, I mean, like, like I mentioned earlier, I was I was purely pulling for just chaos and controversy at the end of there. So anything that creates more yeah. of that, I think it, there is so much that has to go into this scenario even taking place that we should just lean into the chaos that it's going to create. Yeah, there should be a rule properly ridiculous for that scenario. But I guess it's a lot more likely in a in a three. Well, yeah. Which I'm guessing yeah, is why they want to put the, the penalties on top of every every group game. Yeah, it's just I don't adding more penalty shootouts when the, is not what the craziest part about that about that suggestion. The craziest part about that, that that idea that I saw was that they are considering doing the penalties before the game. So could what? you? I mean, really? could, yeah. So I mean, again, this was just from one article, but it was from a, a credible source that. It, but then the, someone could play for a draw. Well, yeah, exactly. Like, have, more likely to. have you seen how many nil nils there's been in this World Cup? Imagine that how many there'll be at the next yeah. one. If every if every time you play a game, one team knows that they can't draw the game, and one team knows yeah. that if they just sit back and get a draw, they'll be fine. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's FIFA. Eh? Um, <laughs> yeah. Let's wrap up. Thank you very much for listening, everyone. Um, for more from Jack during the next week or so of the World Cup, you can find him on Twitter at. At UTD Tate, T-A-I-T. You can find me at Harry Robinson 64 and the podcast itself at UTD Weekly Pod. That's P-O-D at the end there. United Women host Aston Villa this weekend on Saturday, 12.30 at Old Trafford. 30,000 plus crowd expected. I'm sure that will increase significantly before the day itself. But there are tickets available for, I think, six quid for adults, three quid for kids. If anyone wants to go to that, it should be pretty fun. We did, we previewed that in our, our last episode, uh, episode 26, with an interview with United centre-back Millie Turner. So if you haven't listened to that yet and you're interested, check that out. And the academy teams have been in action. We'll tell you a bit more about that next time. Most important news on that front is that the 
under 18s are playing away to Crystal Palace in the third round of the FA Youth Cup and the under 21s are playing away at Bolton Wanderers first team in the Papa John's Trophy. Both of those games will be in about two weeks' time, two to three weeks' time. So those are two to keep an eye on. They'll be really interesting and could be great, could be a good learning opportunity. We'll see how that goes. But thanks for listening. Have a great week. Goodbye. Network. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.